0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Thursday, and uh, basically, it's like, you know, choose your adventure. Which crazy do you want to talk about? Uh, I devoted my newsletter today to the crazy down in Arizona. I made the judgment call not to inflict all of these sound bites on listeners of this podcast, but you can read shortish transcripts in morning shots where I, yes, I did describe Carrie Lake as a groomer, a groomer of crazy. Why should they have the name, especially when you have this metastasizing lunacy going on down in Arizona? But today, let's focus on some other strange stories that are happening up on Capitol Hill. And we are joined by Dana Milbank, a nationally syndicated op-ed columnist for The Washington Post, who is speaking to us from the nation's capital right now. So good morning, Dana.
1: Good morning. I'd like you to refer to me as a groomer
0: of crazy. A groomer of crazy. I mean, I would prefer to be a groomer of sanity, but (laughs) so what are you doing at the Capitol today? Just tell us. Uh,
1: Well, you know, Charlie, I've actually sort of assigned myself a new beat. Speaking of grooming crazy, I am planning to spend the better part of the next year watching the House of Representatives, in particular the Senate as well, but the Republicans with their four-seat majority, and just how they're going to uh, pull that off and what chaos is going to ensue. So I am indeed in the belly of the beast today. I'll be heading over to Pelosi's weekly press conference right after this. But there's a nice little uh, soundproof booth right off the House floor in the uh, third floor press gallery here. So it's, it's a marvel of technology.
0: Well, make sure you let us know when you need to leave to go and and cover actual news uh, after we're done with all this rank uh, punditry. So it occurs to me that we're in this very, very strange moment right now where the Republicans have just won control of the House of Representatives, but they are in absolute, complete disarray. Whereas the Democrats who have spent the last 50 years modeling being in disarray are in remarkable array. Could just take a moment to talk about how the fact that you had a changing of the generational guard among House Democrats, and it was unanimous. There was no, the knives were not out. There was not a lot of, you know, things being thrown up against the wall, and they have a new leader, and he was elected by acclamation. So it can just reflect on this sort of strange reversal of, of fate that we're seeing on Capitol
1: Hill. Yes, that's exactly what I've been seeing all week here. And yes, of course, it's the opposite of what you'd expect. But really, yes, Republicans won the House, but Democrats won the election Hmm. in the sense that there was no wave. And if you thought the Democrats had difficulty governing with a five-seat majority, well, wait till you see Kevin McCarthy with a four-seat majority. So I you know I think it's not just the disarray, it's the mood of things, you know, in the the House Democratic caucus meetings, you know, there's hugs and smiles and handshakes and backslapping. I think they feel that uh certainly that they dodged a bullet there, but also that they're maybe just beginning to uh, Break the MAGA craziness that's going on, you know. And of course, then you've got Kevin McCarthy, who I guess he's more likely to be speaker than anybody else is. But he's got these five hard no votes right now. He's got you know, a month to try to convince a hard no to be a, a squishy maybe. But uh, you know, and there's said to be maybe twenty who aren't mm-hmm. so keen on going along with his speakership. So. He's basically going to spend the next month giving things away to them. He may well give away things that make it even more impossible to govern. You know, is there going to be this motion to vacate the chair, which basically means they've got a gun to his head. And at any point, any member can demand a vote of no confidence in Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, this week we actually had a vote of no confidence in Kevin McCarthy, and it was cast by Kevin McCarthy. Because he's getting on board with passing this omnibus, this massive spending bill mm-hmm. now, uh, so he doesn't have to do it in January. You would think if you were confident in your leadership, you'd want a short term spending extension, so you could enact the big spending bill in January when you take over. But Kevin McCarthy has no confidence in Kevin McCarthy's ability to get that through the house, and I, I think that's that's sound judgment on his part. I have no idea how he's going to govern the place so Democrats are uh, now in the minority. They have one task, and that is going to be to, to thwart Kevin McCarthy, which is a much easier task than trying to govern with a four seat majority.
0: I, I think you've already answered my question, but I just don't see how this works. I, I don't see how, uh, first of all, let, let's talk about Kevin McCarthy becoming the speaker. There are 20 quasi hard no votes. Now, technically, he does not need 218 votes to be elected speaker, right? That if they decide not to vote, if they don't show up or they abstain, he can win the speakership with a smaller number of votes. First of all, is that that's correct, right?
1: Yes, he needs a majority yeah. of, of, those,
0: of the yeah. votes cast. So of, of the votes cast. But in terms of actually governing now, because there are a lot of quasi-centrists to the extent that we can describe anyone in the Republican Party as a centrist, there are at least a dozen or more newly elected Republicans from crossover districts that were won by Joe Biden that might not want to go along with the crazy caucus. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's going to have to find a way to square the circle. He's also going to have to find a way to make deals that, you know, might be compromises with the Biden administration. And you know that nothing outrages or stokes up the perpetual outrage machine more than right. compromising with Democrats. And you know that Donald Trump, who's got no skin in the game, is just going to be throwing turd bombs from Mar-a-Lago at him any time he actually wants to make a deal. So how does it
1: work? Absolutely. And one of the other rules that appears uh, likely, is certainly possible, and I, I would say likely that they're going to impose on McCarthy, is that he can't bring anything to the floor unless it has a majority of the caucus. What'd and that's do? very significant because think about what's happening Happening with the rail bill. They uh, had the vote in the House here yesterday, and Republicans got up on the floor and said, yes, it's terrible. It's a Biden failure that we're all here, but it would be absolutely catastrophic to have this rail strike, a loss of $2 billion a day to the country. So we've got to support this. And what happened? Well, 40% of the Republican caucus made that sensible vote. 60% of them said, no, we're going to vote against this. We would rather have an economic calamity uh, than have any sort of a a reasonable Mm -hmm. compromise right now. And I think that's probably a good proxy for what you're looking at. 40% of the Republican caucus, I wouldn't say they're moderate, but they're sort of in the reality-based community. 60% not there at all, you know, willing to inflict economic calamity rather than do anything that might appear to be compromising or voting with or endorsing the Biden agenda. So, you know, how do you govern in that way? So, yeah, you mentioned there are a few moderates and they can be just as much, uh, you know, you only need uh, five of them, the way things look now, to throw the entire vote off kilter. So they can screw things up just as easily as the Freedom Caucus can do. You know, it just seems that when you only have four votes to play with and two-thirds of your membership is kind of wackadoodle, I don't see how you uh, how you govern in any situation. I don't see how you compromise with the Democrats. I don't see how you placate the mainstream Republicans and uh, the Freedom Caucus. Even with a twenty or thirty seat majority, it was you know which is the sort of thing that Paul Ryan and mm-hmm. John Boehner had. They couldn't handle it. Now Kevin McCarthy, who I you know is a, a bear of very little brain, I would say, compared to Boehner or Paul Ryan, dealing with a fraction of their majority. To get a little bit more specific, what
0: happens with aid to Ukraine? Because I think that there's a strong bipartisan majority that would support aid for Ukraine. But with the Hastert rule, is Kevin McCarthy going to be able to get a majority of the caucus to move ahead on that? And even if he did that, what will Donald Trump say from Mar-a-Lago? I mean, all of these things seem to be, you know, unanswered questions, his ability to do that. So do you, what, what is your sense on on Ukraine? Yeah. Because, I, I mean, that's... obviously that, that's a life and death uh, issue that they're going to have to confront very shortly.
1: Now, you know, I mentioned the, the rail strike bill. Yeah. Now, notably, McCarthy and Scalise voted with the 60 percent of the crazy caucus that said, mm-hmm. no, we'd rather have economic calamity than, than, than vote with, uh, with the Democrats uh, on this bill. You know, Ukraine may be just on the other side of the line. So maybe a, a portion of the crazy caucus will side with the sensible caucus. You know, certainly Kevin McCarthy and, and Steve Scalise are on the side of not abandoning our allies. In Ukraine and handing the place over to Vladimir Putin. But McCarthy has also said it's going to be difficult. So, I, I mean, I think the compromise he's working out now is you know, all kinds of investigations of how the money is being spent in Ukraine. And when you look at the list of investigations that they're preparing to pursue whether that's you know against Mayorkas at DHS or you know the eight different uh, Hunter Biden investigations investigating where the money is going uh, in Ukraine actually is a perfectly sensible one. So I it would surprise me even in this broken caucus in this broken house that they're going to have if they couldn't get support for Ukraine, but it'll probably be a much like everything else a much noisier process and a far lengthier one and everything's going to be done in a state of suspense because you won't actually know what's going to happen until you get out there on the floor. And also with a very, very short leash, which
0: was on display this week. We spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about Trump's Dinner with Nick, Dining with Nazis, and the fallout from that. So uh, Mitch McConnell comes out yesterday or the day before. I've lost track of, of days now. And, and without prompting, rips Trump saying that he's not likely to be elected president again. Interestingly enough, he said he's not likely to be elected. He did not say and therefore should never be elected president right. again. But we take what we can get. He's a
1: pundit too. You could have a, him
0: on the Bulwark a, podcast. Well, exactly. It's That was more punditry than moral leadership. But there was a little bit of contrast between th- his approach and and Kevin McCarthy, so could you talk about this? I mean, McCarthy has this incredibly complicated dance. He's got to do a kabuki dance on a tightrope here, right, with
1: with with Donald Trump. It really is, and of course, you know, Kevin McCarthy is not quite as um, eloquent, shall we say, as McConnell. So, you know, you often he'll start a sentence, and you have no idea what hurdles of syntax await him. So, you have no idea how the sentence will end. So, even if he's trying to convey something. It may not come across that way. But yes, they. I think there was Tuesday when they both spoke out on this. So you had McConnell being, well, okay, it was punditry, but it was still fairly clear that he disapproved of Donald Trump mm-hmm. meeting with these uh, you know, anti-Semites. McCarthy got up there outside the West Wing of the White House in front of the Camerons and said, Trump denounced these people, <laughs> which which was not true. Which was uh, clearly not true. <laughs> right. I, did he think it was true? I have no idea. But that was his sort of default position. It was that nobody should be meeting with these characters. And Trump definitely knows that and, and, <laughs> and denounces them. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was, you know, he was trying to say, okay, we are not on board with uh, the, the leaders of our party sitting down to white tablecloth meals with white supremacists, but uh, he was just unable to show any daylight with Trump. So I think that's the difference uh, that you've had from McConnell, who's not a profile in courage either, but is at least willing to take on the slings and arrows from Mar-a-Lago. So McCarthy clearly can't afford to do that now. Maybe he will after he gets his speakership, but if he's going to be uh, on this, uh, being able to have a no-confidence vote at any point, well, then every day is basically his leadership is going to be on the line. They've, they've floated some sorts of compromises, like they might give him a six or seven month honeymoon before they all start the votes of no confidence. And then if somebody calls a, for a vote of no confidence, then they have to wait 60 days before calling the next one. But it's a question of, you know, is his hanging going to come every 24 hours or is it, are they going to, you know, give him brief respites in between?
0: You know, going back to the the theme of Republicans in disarray, you know, I and I know you do as well, you know, spend some time um, on MAGA media or it's not MAGA media necessarily, but, uh, you know, MAGA adjacent media, conservative media. and I'm really, really struck again by the amount of agita uh, post-election that you're seeing there, you know, despite uh, winning control of the House and the disarray that you're seeing everywhere. The stories out of Georgia, um, when people are you know realizing this Herschel Walker campaign amazingly is not working out very well. He's not campaigning. (laughs) He's completely incoherent. We have more stories of girlfriends that he's attacking. He is being outspent overwhelmingly. Uh, That just didn't know that is not going well. uh, Amazingly, Mm -hmm. you have a fight at the RNC with people saying Ronna McDaniel um, has been a complete disaster. Uh, We're going to give her another term, and the only alternative to her apparently (laughs) is my pillow guy. Mike Lindell. <laughs> and it's, it seems like one thing after another that is affecting them. And then there's one thing that I don't want to gloss over since you're up on Capitol Hill, how really, and I guess with a little bit of historical perspective, how amazing it was that you had a super majority vote in the United States Senate this week to approve a same-sex marriage bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, you and I both remember when that would have been politically toxic, but you had... Was it ten, or was it eleven Republicans that voted in favor of this legislation? Most Republicans voted no, as you might expect,
1: yeah, but, but I think th- it was sixty two votes in favor so right. that's a
0: that's a considerable number in terms of real outrage in the right wing media because they have gone all in on the whole idea of you know, you know gay marriage and transsexuals. This is a massive defeat for them. I mean this is an extraordinary moment it's an extraordinary moment for bipartisanship, and it's really a repudiation. Of much of the, much of what the MAGA right, you know, has been banking on yes. as, as their golden ticket. So, you have any thoughts about that? Because it's really quite a, a
1: transformation of public opinion, too. I agree with your uh, larger point although I would personally very much enjoy seeing my pillow guy at, as the head of the RNC I think that would oh, be
0: from your lips to God's ear that would oh, be absolutely. Thor- that would
1: be thoroughly fitting I okay. I was able to get an exclusive interview with him at Trump's uh, rollout at uh, Mar-a-Lago you know he's very very tight-lipped fellow but he did say he wants to his his agenda was melting down uh, the voting machines and turning them into prison bars I guess for the election workers of <laughs> course
0: I would have thought bullets but prison did. <laughs> but he I, he
1: didn't specify that. You that that oh, part okay. of the agenda was left unclear. But you are right. It's not just the election, You know, the, the smaller wave than expected in the House, the fact that the Democrats kept the Senate. I think it was because of the very clear repudiation of the MAGA Republicanism when you look at particularly all the Secretary of State candidates that went down uh, and the, the gubernatorial uh, candidates who went down like uh, In Arizona and in Pennsylvania. So it wasn't just that it didn't work out very well for the Republicans. It showed that the horse they've been riding for the last six years uh, is, you know, it may be time to head off to the glue maker. That, I think, is the source of the disarray right now. And I think that is why you're actually able to see some progress here. You you know, you talked about gay marriage, you know, progress on a spending bill maybe progress on this rail strike, you know, a whole bunch of other things are happening. So I think the will has been broken to some extent of the MAGA crowd. Now, I don't take this as altogether good news that they may not be able to prevail anymore, but they, Donald Trump and those Trumpists have more than enough power to bollocks everything up still. I mean, you know, they, they will be able to effectively bring things to a halt uh, as we go ahead into this next Congress.
0: This raises an interesting question um, that I wanted to get your take on. Um, A.B. Stoddard has a great piece in The Bulwark today reminding Republicans that Donald Trump is not going to graciously go away. He is not going to concede that Donald Trump will burn it all down if he cannot control the party. And I guess this is the one thing that I think that a lot of both pundits and Republican wishcasters have, have yet really to grapple with, which is how do you... What do you do with a problem like Donald Trump? He's, he's in the race. He never acknowledges defeat. Ron DeSantis may be the great hope down in Florida. We can get to him in a moment. But, you know, what, what is your take on this? I mean, how does the Republican Party move past Donald Trump if Donald Trump has made it perfectly clear that he will pull the temple down around it, that he will burn yes. everything down?
1: And he's uniquely good at that, uh, Charlie. I mean, if you think about, like, look at the wreckage around this man uh, of all the people who have supported him, who have wound up uh, um, in prison or disgraced or defeated or some combination of those things. And in each case, you see who walks away from (laughs) the wreckage is Donald Trump, character assassination is his unique gift. Look, DeSantis may be able to prevail against him in a Republican presidential nomination battle, but Trump's ability to destroy the reputation and the image of people is really second to none. And so I think we have only begun to see a little bit, you know, uh, Trump is sort of debuting uh, lines of attack. So I think that is true. And that has to be kept in mind that uh, he has uh, the ability to destroy. I, I have no idea uh, what Republicans do about this. There were, they, you know, they, they had years in which, as you know, that there, they could have done something about it. But I, I don't think, you know, suppose he doesn't command 80 or 90 percent of the base, but only half of the base Well, that's that's still enough to uh, to cause mayhem uh, every which way, and I've you know he has no loyalty other than to uh, Donald Trump. So there's no moral or political uh, imperative to uh, not to do
0: that. You know, all the focus is on what a big winner Ron DeSantis was down in Florida, which is true. But also, I think it's an underappreciated. Story that Brian Kemp in Georgia defied Donald Trump very, very directly and was excommunicated Mm -hmm. by Donald Trump, who supported a primary opponent to him. Brian Mm -hmm. Kemp blew the Trump backed uh, opponent uh, out in the primary and then won handily in the general election. So if you're looking for a Republican that can survive Trumpism, Brian Kemp has actually of all of these guys that are out there has actually is the one guy that has done it hasn't he you can defy Trump and
1: survive and he proved that yes and Brian Kemp will have another data point after the special election does uh, Herschel Walker go down in flames without Kemp on the ticket with mm-hmm. him you know that's actually a laboratory experiment of what was what was bringing out voters and, and who wasn't bringing out voters. So we'll have the answers to that very shortly. But yeah, but also in, in Florida, I mean, let's, let's be clear, the Democrats really didn't contest Florida. They had candidates, they had serious candidates on the ballot, but they really weren't working. Uh, they weren't pouring money in there, the party or Democratic donors. They weren't uh, doing get out the vote efforts. They weren't uh, working with Latino voters because mm-hmm. of the assumption Uh, Of defeat, I think that was a a mistake. But uh, Florida was very much not in play, so I think that artificially magnifies the size of DeSantis's win.
0: Well, DeSantis is uh, he's not necessarily the front runner, but he's sort of the pundits' front runner, and now he's getting the front runner treatment. I don't know whether you've had a chance to read Mark Leibovich's uh, treatment of him in the Atlantic. I started. It's a great read, basically saying you know, you know, maybe from a distance he looks really formidable, but uh, up close and personal. Maybe not so much. And I I guess this is one of those moments where you have to remember all of the other guys that were trotted out as front runners, as, you know, great hopes who then fizzled um, in the presidential spotlight. And we just we Mm -hmm. Ron DeSantis has just not been remotely tested
1: uh, yet, has he? Yeah, this is true. And I mean, probably the best thing for Ron DeSantis would be if it's a Ron DeSantis versus Donald Trump nomination fight because you know the reason we had Donald Trump in 2016 was because there were I don't know 15 or 18 of them um, but and there were there, there were several serious ones um, but none of them was able to get a clean shot at Trump he was able to pick them off. Uh, uh one at a time uh whereas if if, if I, I i'm still convinced if republican voters had been given the choice between donald trump or not donald trump they would have chosen that uh, but i don't think they ever had that choice because it was carved up uh, among so many others so uh and you know that's that could easily happen again anybody anybody who's saying donald trump cannot win the republican nomination i think is uh is uh, is being a bit too hopeful. Of course he yeah, can. Yeah, of, of course
0: he can. Okay, let's go back to the the House Republicans. Uh, since you were up on Capitol Hill, um, you wrote about the you described the House under the GOP as the crazies take the wheel. And in particular, uh, this uh, this this press conference, this announcement by Jim Jordan and James Comer from uh, Kentucky, um, announcing all of their multiple probes into the president's son Hunter Biden. I'm going to admit that I have. I've made the the strategic decision not to focus on Hunter Biden until we get some evidence that, in fact, it's relevant to anything. But it seems hard to overstate the absolute obsession of House Republicans with Hunter Biden. Where is this going? And can it actually do damage to Joe Biden? Or are Republicans just going to be clown themselves?
1: I think I think your last question (laughs) answers itself, Charlie, based on history. But, you know, so that, uh, you know, Comer was kind of revealing as he talked about this, because he said several times, this is about Joe Biden. You know, he's the big guy, (laughs) apparently, you know, according to something in the uh, on the Hunter Biden laptop. They tried to draw that link, and it was because, I don't know, uh, you know, Hunter asked for office space for Joe Biden uh, or, or mm-hmm. various other, you know, uh, glancing references like that. Um, but then he sort of gave the game away when reporters started asking questions about other, you know, other topics, you know, the January 6th, other things of interest. And Comer says... Can we please get back to Hunter Biden? (laughs) Hunter Biden, it's very important. Um, And I said, wait a second, you were just saying this is not about Hunter, it was about Joe Biden. Um, So yeah, I, I mean, I suppose, look, Joe Biden has many flaws, and the flaws will be apparent for all to see assuming he's running for re-election but corruption is really not chief among them. So look, if the justice department <laughs> more likely them than the, the clownish house republicans find some link, well we'll all be uh, uh, surprised by that. But you know, it's sort of you know, I think we can stipulate that Hunter Biden whatever the legal ramifications are is a you know, pretty sleazy guy, had uh, troubles with addiction, got into all kinds of bad stuff. You know, we know that it is baked into the cake. Uh, so it, it all comes down to, the, you know, the ability to prove somehow that Joe Biden was was calling all the shots here, which is sort of goes against everything uh, that we've heard and seen over the years. So, I mean, you know, so that's, that's, you know, they figured, look, that's what they have at the moment. You know, it was uh, Benghazi against Hillary Clinton until it turned the Benghazi probe unmasked the email server. So, You know, it's a question of this is what they've got for now, and they'll see what they see, what documents are turned over and see what else, what other direction that might send.
0: No, I I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering that the Benghazi hearings ultimately did torpedo Hillary Clinton.
1: They did not for
0: Benghazi, right? No, no, but they (laughs) exactly because of other things. I mean, so that did have that effect. And I think that's part of their memory. So there's another wild card here, and I don't know how this is going to play. You know, before the election, we had the Hunter Biden laptop story, which most of most of the media decided was not a legitimate story. It was a bogus story. Mm -hmm. Ignored it. It now turns out not to have been a bogus story. So will there be the temptation on the part of the media now to overcompensate, you know, having not thrown the flag on the original laptop story
1: to overhype
0: anything that comes out about Hunter Biden now as kind of a make good?
1: I suppose there may be some of that. But, you know, look, I and, and the Post did an exhaustive look uh, at, at, the, at the laptop. Um, you know, were people misled by the FBI and others, as the Republicans claim, before the election about the legitimacy uh, of the laptop? I don't know. There certainly were many doubts about the authenticity of it back then. But uh, so, okay, the Post and others have done a re look at the laptop, knowing that it is maybe not everything uh, involved in this is legitimate, but it is at core legitimate. Uh, there still is no Joe Biden evidence in there. What uh, Jim Jordan's talking about now is not really the laptop, but whistleblowers. We have whistleblowers. We have 18 whistleblowers, uh, apparently. So, okay, well, if they, you know, if. Uh, If they've indeed uh, got whistles and goods, well, I guess we'll be hearing from them. But if, you know, they're blowing uh, uh, silly kazoos, I suppose we're going to uh, hear about that too.
0: Let's look ahead a little bit. One of the next big things is going to happen in Congress. Of course, they have a very, very busy lame duck session here. But sometime in the next four weeks, maybe the next three weeks, we're going to get the uh, we'll get the final report from the January 6th committee. Uh, what do you expect mm-hmm. from that? And will that make any difference? I mean, that's the question we've been asking since the beginning. Um, I, you know i i and I also wonder you know whether or not the the conviction of the oath keeper leaders on seditious
1: conspiracy charges puts a little wind in their sails at the moment. What do you think? Look, I think regardless of the committee, that uh, the Stuart Rhodes uh, conviction, I I think, is hugely important. And of course, uh, the the MAGA crowd will say, uh, you know, attack the jury process Mm -hmm. and say that it's tainted because uh, uh, it's in the nation's capital. But, you know, this is real. January 6th was sedition. That is official. That's no longer if it ever was a judgment call. So I think that's hugely important uh, in its own right. The January 6th committee did, I think, yeoman's work over the summer with their hearings. There will be another bite at the apple here. I don't expect, certainly based on what we saw at the last hearing, that they necessarily have anything new other than a narrative that will be important to have out there uh, for posterity. Now, maybe they could, uh, I don't they could they work out something with ways and means and just throw in an appendix there and here are six years of Trump's tax returns? Okay. What what, what do <laughs> – yeah. I mean, are we ever going to see those tax returns? And if we did,
0: I mean, hasn't that really been baked into the cake? Don't we kind of know what the deal is there or –
1: Right, it would be like we are shocked that Hunter Biden was involved in sleazy shenanigans. Right, I think the only shock would be if they'd release them and we found out that he'd actually given given a fortune to veterans' charities or something like that. That would that would fundamentally change our view of him. No, I, I mean, I, 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 look, who knows? Maybe they'll figure out some way. I think it probably would would not look good for them to just dump the taxes out there right now since they've spent years in court uh, arguing that there, it was for a legislative purpose. You know, and the Roberts court did, you know, they can technically say they forced the executive to give that up. So uh, it'll be a precedent for future uh, Congresses, but it's of, of very little use to them now in terms of uh, legislation. You know, so I, I think it would be gutsy to put it out uh, right now and controversial, but... I've given up on predictions. I've surrendered my predictions. I think that's a sound uh, life choice.
0: So I, I, don't, I don't want to dwell on the whole Nick Fuentes dinner because I think that we've litigated that pretty extensively and will continue to do so. But, you know, you take a step back, and I noticed that back in October, before any of this happened, um, you you wrote about um, American Jews starting to think the unthinkable. And, and I guess the point here is that anti-Semitism has now... I want to be careful about this. I, you know, it's always been a factor. It's always been there. But, you know, as I was discussing with Peter Weiner earlier this, this week, I just get the feeling that it's gotten more oxygen and is more dangerous than any time in my lifetime. That something that we thought, you know, was this, you know, sleeping evil has now arisen again. And, and it's getting a lot more traction than any of us ever would have imagined and maybe even realized at the moment. So, Talk to me about this why you wrote about this back in October.
1: Yeah, it it's a, it's a very important and troubling thing I mean for me as a as a Jew but uh, you know for all of us I mean Jews are often the canary in, in the coal mine you know in terms of an intolerant uh, society. Yeah, my rabbi at uh, Yom Kippur services uh, just asked for a show of hands of how many of you have thought about where do we go? Uh, if we can't stay here. Mm. And uh, I'm one of the people who have had those thoughts. Um, you know, Ultimately, I come back to the reasoning that if it's not safe here, it's not going to be safe anywhere. It's not going to be safe in Israel or Europe or anywhere else. You know, This is where a liberal democracy of, of free people uh, have to make their stand for law and order, for equal justice. And if it fails here, certainly, we can't count on it anywhere else. But, uh, you know, I would say... Uh, you know, half or more of the people were raising their hands uh, in my synagogue. And I talked to uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, at um, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, and he says it's among the most common questions he's getting. And this is something that would would never contemplate, it, no. uh, is certainly in my lifetime. Anti-Semitic incidents, as the ADL counts them, I think it was a tripling since uh, 2015 when Trump came down the escalator. And uh, it remains at uh, record high levels. You know, and it's important to point out, this is not just Nick Fuentes and the right. It's the BDS movement that often Mm -hmm. bleeds into anti-Semitism on the left, particularly on college campuses. That's been a problem, too. But I think we've seen... What Trump did here was just the latest example of this, but it's been happening since Charlottesville and you know the many anti-Semitic actions of Donald Trump uh, uh, in the years before them. You know, so people have been scolding Republicans or you know scolding Trump for this. To me, it goes beyond politics, and what's happening is these people have been pulled into the mainstream. It has been legitimized. So now we're talking about. Uh, Holocaust denial, <laughs> as if this deserves a place in in any uh, American discussion. So uh, they have been emboldened. You know, they've they've emboldened uh, the Daily Stormer uh, mm-hmm. and, and neo Nazis, just as they've emboldened QAnon and Proud Boys and uh, Stuart Rhodes and all the rest of
0: them. And this happened before the twenty sixteen election. I mean, there was a lot of discussion about that during that campaign and some of the people that have become the anti-anti trumpers um were raising alarms about donald trump's wink wink alliance with some of those people even before he was elected president so i mean
1: none absolutely been- i yes yes indeed and you know it it was sort of subtle uh, at first it was the uh retweeting right. uh, of, of, people. It was the use of, remember, there was that questionable use of a uh, Jewish star atop a, a pile of really money. Was this. that an accident? Uh, then there were the ads uh, about, uh, George Soros and other, uh, financiers, mm-hmm. you know, globalists, you know, so they were anti-Semitic overtones. There was Trump going before a Jewish audience and saying, you won't support me because I don't want your money. Um, uh, and, you know, his, his response, you know, is, yeah, I've got a, you know, a Jewish daughter and, and, and grandchildren, and no doubt some of his best friends are black, yeah. which explained nothing. Uh, so, you know, we've seen that uh, over and over again. Uh, you know, people like uh, Richard Spencer was, uh, was saying in 2016, we have a psychic connection uh, with Donald Trump. They were saying, you know, he completes us. And this is before Charlottesville. Um, so... You know, I think the anti-Semitism, you know, maybe compared to the anti-immigrant stuff, the uh, the pure racism directed at uh, Latinos, Asians, Black Americans, uh, that was uh, less subtle. But, you know, I think it's now inevitably, you know, it's not just sort of this undertone. It's now the melody of MAGA republicanism.
0: I think that's right.
1: And also the mainstreaming of conspiracy
0: theories and conspiratorial thinking, because that always seems to end up with the Jews behind it. And, you know, even though Nick Fuentes is clear, you know, sort of a neo-Nazi, he's the exclamation point on that story. The real, I think, problem is the fact that, uh, that Trump actually did want to have dinner with Kanye West, who is an amazingly famous, wealthy, successful mm-hmm. pop culture figure who has been trafficking in vile anti-Semitism. And as a result, you know, I often think of, you know, anti-Semitism as being the recessive gene out there, you know, that's always been out there, but, you you know, we're able to safely, you know, keep it at arm's length or suppress it. But what's happening mm-hmm. now, I, I fear, is that it's being introduced to a whole new generation in a whole new ways, that Mm -hmm. you have millions of people that have now been drawn into this conspiracy mindset who are now being exposed to people saying, and you know who's behind it. So that you have social Mm -hmm. media platforms, you have younger voices, you have pop culture voices that are now introducing this ancient evil to a completely new set of people. And so that it's Mm -hmm. not just the revival of what you know has been there all along it does feel like it's metastasizing in a in a way that we don't fully i, I don't think that we uh, fully grasp the extent of it or the danger even after we've seen this dramatic uptick in anti-jewish violence
1: yes and the other piece of that is we are losing our you know, living historical memory of the yes. holocaust that 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 is that is almost gone already uh, it's not being taught uh, alarming numbers of uh, young people are really not clear about what that was all about uh, so you know it's sort of a virgin territory that uh, the conspiracy theorists are clear to conquer but it's perhaps no different from what we're you know, hearing about every other racial, or religious, ethnic minority uh, in America, but of course there are centuries and, and centuries of practice at this, and it is sort of—I mean, you know—it is it sounds ludicrous to talk about Jewish space lasers and other things that sound like the uh, protocols of the uh, elders of Zion. So, and I think, I, you know, I have a tendency to say, oh, come on, how can people possibly believe that? But of course, now that we we know exactly what people can possibly believe about uh, ivermectin and uh, voting machines. So That's a great why point. wouldn't they we, believe We are that?
0: living through in real time a demonstration of what people are capable of believing. So when someone says, or you're being paranoid if you think x y and z look uh, I, I i'm I'm listening to a lot of uh, the conservatives who are pushing back on criticism of you know Marjorie Taylor Greene by saying well what about Elon Omar the what aboutism but um the, the reality is is that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not only not going to pay a political price for you know her speculation about Jewish space lasers She is about to become far more influential and powerful in this House Republican majority. She
1: will get all of her committees back, won't she? They are going to be promoting her. Yes, and Kevin McCarthy is using her to whip votes for him. I mean, you know, she's becoming a key lieutenant to leadership. And I think that, you know, the lesson is to any other, you know, uh, aspiring uh, politicians out there that uh, you can't go too far in terms of uh, uh, conspiracy and crazy assertions that will generate attention uh, will get you uh, uh, onto Fox News and uh, that it will be your source account
0: I know that you need to run uh, to Nancy Pelosi's press conference so thank you for making time for us and we'll uh, we'll look for your reporting on it thanks so much Thank you Charlie right. it's been a thank pleasure you. and thank you all for listening to today's bulwark podcast I'm Charlie Sykes we'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again